whom whom do you honestly wish you looked like? Have you ever seen a car that you deeply wished you could own and drive? No gearheads? Okay, thank you, Wally. All right. No one? Is there a person whose abilities, mental, physical, spiritual, you wish you could have? Have you ever seen a home, probably on HGTV, so great that you deeply wanted to have it for yourself? Uh, whose spouse have you met that you secretly wished you were married to? What things do people around you have that you really, really want for yourself? And then to my generations below me, what is the one experience that someone else has had that you wished you had instead of that person? If it's easy to answer any of those questions, I'm glad you're here because that's called coveting and it leads to a miserable inner life. Even if you get all that you crave, your soul withers. So if you resonate with it, you answer yes. That's more than just you. There's many of us in this room saying yes as well. So let's grow in this. I'll define it by letting someone else define it. Coveting is ungodly and discontented desire, passion, envy, craving, greed, obsession, longing, or lust for someone or something that is not supposed to be yours. A little more simply, coveting is when you aren't content with what God wants for you, and instead, you want something he has not chosen for you. Uh, there's a sociologist, I can't pronounce his name, Thorstein Veblen. You try. Uh, he describes coveting in our society, and he makes this argument that the, the main way in our society that we obtain social prestige and power, how we really climb the ranks in our society, because it's not a caste society, how do we climb the ranks in prestige and power in our society is through, he says, conspicuous displays of leisure and consumption. You ever heard the, the phrase conspicuous consumption? He's the one who coined that phrase. He says that social prestige is connected to wealth and we dis demonstrate our wealth by what? Flaunting it. That's why it's conspicuous. It's not <laughs> inconspicuous. It's not hidden. It's not like, ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave a hundred just poking out my pocket. Well, I don't know if that's conspicuous either. <laughs> that's conspicuous. You're doing it. It's only a hundred. But coveting, what he's saying is, is a way of life is really the way of life in our society to gain social prestige. Now, today, 
is a long story. We're going from chapter uh, 8, 30, verse 30 to 10, 5. So we've got a long story. So I need you to buckle up. But it's a long story, a lot of vengeance, a lot of violence, but it all begins with coveting. That's where it all starts. And this is not going to be the only case in Judges. You're going to see more uh, with Samson. You're going to see more at the very end after Samson. But uh, this needs to begin to be exposed, unpacked, spoken of in this. Because with Samson and others, it's different parts. It's different coveting. It, it's more lust. It's more sexual. But here we have this coveting of something that's not mine. But I'm going to take what's not mine when I want because I want it. All right. Chapter 8, verse 30. Let's go. Gideon, if you don't have a Bible, there's one around you under your chair. What page was that, Solo? 215 if you need it, okay? We, just, we love the Bible. If you're a guest with us, if you need a Bible, take that Bible. I just want you to see the Bible as we're talking about this, okay? Judges 8, verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, since he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash and Orpha of the Abyssalites. When Gideon died, <coughs> the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves by worshiping the bells and made Belbereth their god. That means the Lord of the Treaty or the Lord of the Covenant. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hand of the enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Jeroboam. Kindness, that's a said, that's a covenant kindness. That's a, a, a keeping of that covenant and the kindness. Oh, we're, we're together, we're partners. They don't continue to show kindness to the house of Gideon for all the good he had done for Israel. Now, the story of Judges is of the time after Moses and Joshua and before Israel's first king, Saul. So that, that's where we're at. And what God has done is he commanded them to clear out the inhabitants of the land that he had promised them. This is your land. Drive out uh, the pagan gods and the peoples of this land. This is yours. Take it. But they disobey and they get on this cycle of worshiping other gods, then being punished by oppression, then crying out to God for deliverance. Then he delivers them. And then that judge dies, that deliverer dies, and the people do it again. This is that cycle of the whole judges that we've seen. They have peace, they rebel, God punishes, they cry out. God has mercy and point to judge, the judge delivers Israel, and we do this over and over again. Now there's 12 judges throughout this whole book uh, in, in connection with the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see the, the completeness of what happens during this time. But there's not 12 complete cycles, but you do see this cycle happen multiple times. Now, Gideon is one of the judges that gets raised up by God after they being oppressed during the, the Midianite reign. And we found him cowering in a wine press, separating the wheat from the chaff with his mouth, I think. I don't know where the wind came from. He goes blowing away because he's cowering in a dungeon. And the angel tells him, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. So this terrifying God, God then calls him a valiant warrior, then makes him a valiant warrior, then gives him these soldiers. Then God says, no, that's too many soldiers. I want you to know who saves you. Let's take all these 30,000 men, whittle it down to, whittle it down to 300 men. But then Gideon does this. But then later, after he's accomplished, after he's won the victory, 
the people want to make him the king. And he's like, nah, nah, I don't want to be king. The Lord's your king. But then he does all the kingship stuff. He takes money as tribute. He then takes that, that gold and makes it into an image for the people to worship. So now he's the king who's setting up the, 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 the priesthood duties of like, this is how we're going to worship now. And he spends the rest of his days really living like a king. And so it ends with getting with the cycle of the deliverer delivering them from oppression, but then delivering them to an idol to worship. And so I point that out to point out that this story has just gotten darker and darker as we've gone, and this is where we're going. Is that it starts usually with small little families, but then you see different pockets of the nation, and then by the end of it, you're going to see the, the complete canonization of the Israelites, meaning the complete idolatry and them living like everyone else around them other than who God has called them to be. There's a little bit of warning here from Gideon that when godly leaders do well, temptations arise towards selfish ambition, selfish agenda, And when you have a selfish agenda and arrogant ambition, your kids usually will, if not more. And what does Gideon have? Seventy sons. That, <laughs> that Costco bill was outrageous. He's got 70 sons. I don't know. Maybe each wife had a card. I don't know how. <laughs> talk about how many wives he had, but he does have 70 legitimate sons. He has one illegitimate son who's Abimelech, and he lives in Shechem. Now, if you know anything about Shechem, that, that if you were the first initial readers of this story, you would have known, oh, Abram, Shechem. This is where Abram meets with God at Shechem. This is where Abram worships God at Shechem. And then Gideon dies, and, and they move way past syncretism where they're worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping the God of the Bible, the God of their fathers, and worshiping the other bells simultaneously, kind of inter, intermixing the different practices of the different worship and lifestyles of these gods. But they go further than that and replace Yahweh with the God of the Canaanites. Do you see that? They replace God with Belbereth. They don't remember the Lord. That doesn't mean they have amnesia. This means they choose to forget the covenant they have, their people, with the Lord. We're not going to remember what Gideon did uh, uh, for us. We're not going to remember what God did through Gideon for us. We're going to choose to forget that. We're going to lay that aside. What's more attractive, what's more appealing, what's more alluring, what seems better is this God of these people around us. Now, Maybe put yourself in Abimelech's shoes for a second and think, this is a, he's a real person. That's why I love the Bible. This isn't just some good stories to get a moral lesson at the end. This is the most honest book about human life in this world. <laughs> and Abimelech is an illegitimate son. He's got 70 brothers of that are legitimate, 70, seven kind of completeness, 
And then you got this one. Doesn't live near, just lives with his, his mom. And I think, I think, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. I think he feels disrespected. I'm thinking he, he feels like he, he's no one. He's been pushed aside. That now, where am I? Who am I? I got to make a name for myself. I got to make things right. I'm going to step in. I'm going to set things right. And that's why he does. Look at verse 1, chapter 9. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, Gideon, went to Shechem and spoke to his uncles and to his mother's whole clan, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the citizens of Shechem. Is it better for you that 70 men, all the sons of Jeroboam, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and blood. His mother's relatives spoke all these words about him in the hearing of all the citizens of Shechem, and they were favorable to Bimelech. So like, yeah, yeah, he's one of our, he's one of our own. Yeah, okay. He's our brother. So they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Belbereth. Abimelech used it to hire worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. He went to his father's house in Orpha and killed his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, on top of a large stone. Kind of like sacrifice. Right? For his selfish ambition to happen to be achieved, someone or someone has to be sacrificed. You, you're connecting the dots with me? You not sense this yourself? That in your pursuit of your selfish agenda or your arrogant ambition, someone is going to pay the price for that? But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, survived because he hid. Then all the citizens of Shechem and of Beth Milo gathered together and proceeded to make Abimelech king at the oak of the pillar in Shechem. So he wants to rule. He wants to be king. His name means my father is king and his father is dead. So he wants what his father said he didn't want, but he actually lived like. So I want to be king. He covets it so much that he schemes a plan to talk to his family and woo, woo the whole clan so that he can take kingship through killing his brothers. People always give so much credit to Shakespeare. Shakespeare read the Bible and then wrote some good stuff based upon all the drama and tragedy and violence of the Old Testament. Do you see this? It's amazing. 70 pieces, one for each brother. And he takes that money and hires a, a bunch of thugs. Because typically when you go to fight, typically when you go to fight, you have a, you have a problem. You need the issue resolved, you take your brothers with you. But when your enemy is your brothers, you have to hire thugs to kill them. And he kills them all in a large stone in his father's house, and he's anointed king. Coveting creates a mindset of greed and selfishness that leads to sinful actions. And you're like, well... I've never done something so heinous to my brothers. Okay. That can't be your way out of this confrontation that you might be coveting. That you're not as bad as Abimelech. Okay. That can't be your objection. 
you see the progression, you see the flow of that greed, that arrogant ambition that he has, then does go to sinful action. He's going to act on it, get what he wants, whatever means necessary. So in my attempt to not let you stiff arm this text, but also, but, but take it in, let me ask you. Similar to the questions at the beginning, who makes you jealous? Who, who annoys you because of their beauty or money or humor or intellect or popularity or success? Who annoys you because of their health, their marriage? their children. Who makes you jealous? And the follow-up is, how is your relationship with that person? Do you criticize them behind their back? Do you wish they would suffer or at least at, at the least lose what they have that you want? Or do you wish you could trade places with them? Coveting hurts your relationship with the Lord, with others, and even yourself. This coveting tears apart relationships. What does it look like to have a thriving, <laughs> joyful, holy, growing relationship with a person that you are jealous of? Now let's think about the origins what what did what did God do wrong to the devil? Nothing. <laughs> the devil simply coveted the glory God received, and it ruined their relationship. And the division that happens in Shechem is the division that happens in the church when we covet. You see the line. The division that happens in coveting from the devil to God, then you see the coveting happening in the Shechem and the division that explodes afterwards, and then you see what, what does this look like in the church. It usually comes from this covetousness, this desire for wanting something we don't have that someone else might have, and we want it for ourselves. If you're like, I don't know about that, well, I've got backup. I brought my brothers. James 4, 1 says... What is the source of wars and fights among you? 
Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Coveting tears apart relationships. Why is this quarrels? Why are there fights? Why, why are you uh, at each other's throats? Why is this community group not gelling? And it's not just horizontal. Think vertical. Coveting does hurt your relationship with the Lord. A good father who is generous. A good father is generous who knows what we need and loves to give us what we need and loves to give us things that don't harm us. That, that means sometimes he'll say no because he's so good. He's so generous, sometimes he'll say later because we're not ready for it now. But coveting is being the kid at his birthday party who's opened up all the pre uh, presents and then turns into a rage monster. Not because he did it, because rage monster, you know. Okay. Parents, how does that make you feel? Your kid doesn't get that one thing that they were thinking about, but they got nine. Three. Sorry. I'm talking about coveting him. I'm sitting in the bar really high, you know. <laughs> 24 gifts you gave your kid. I don't know why we're s they're so covetous. Uh. <laughs> But honestly, parents, how does that make you feel? A rage monster yourself? Yeah. What else? Sad. Hurt. Maybe disrespected. Imagine a child with a coveting heart, but with a father who gives every good and every perfect gift. Isn't that, doesn't that imagination sound, seem weird? A, a, a coveting, a kid with a coveting heart who has a father who gives every good and every perfect gift? A proverb to take us back to the story. A faithful person will have many blessings, but one in a hurry to get rich will not go unpunished. All right, we've got 50 more verses. When they told Jotham, he climbed to the top of Mount Gerizim, raised his voice and called him. This is the brother who hid. So he climbs up on the mountain. Above everyone, also safe from everyone. Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, and may God listen to you. The trees decided to anoint a king over themselves. They said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to him, should I stop giving my oil that people use to honor both God and men and rule over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I stop giving my sweetness and my good fruit and rule over trees? Later, the tree said to the grapevine, come and reign over us. The grapevine said to them, should I stop giving my wine that cheers both God and man and rule over trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, come and reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if you really are anointing me as king over you, come and find refuge in my shade. But if not, 
May fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. All right. Do you see the parable? So he's on top of a mountain. He's like, there's all these useful trees. We asked them to be king. And they're like, no, I'm going to keep doing what I'm here to do. I shouldn't stop doing what I'm doing. And isn't this what society happens so often? The, the good people, the, the strong leaders are busy doing good, strong things. And then we, we then are left to vote in the brambles of society. No names, just the brambles, I'll say. <laughs> Unless there's like a mayor bramble out there. A thousand apologies. But then the bramble is so crazy because he's like, I'll rule over you, and if you owe me to, come on, come under my shade. Now, if you don't know what a bramble is, you should think a thicket, you should just think something low bush to the ground and get the irony. Hey, guys, come under me and get my shade. That's what he's saying. And this is, this is Jotham on top of the mountain, giving them this parable, and then this is what he says. Now, if you've acted faithfully, he interprets the parable. If you've acted faithfully and honestly in making Abimelech king, if you've done well by Jeroboam and his famine, if you have rewarded him appropriately for what he did, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and rescued you from Midian. And now you've attacked my father's family today, killed his 70 sons on top of a large stone, and made Abimelech the son of his slave woman king over the citizens of Shechem because he is your brother. So if you've acted faithfully and honestly with Jeroboam and his house this day, rejoice in the bramble of Abimelech. And may he also rejoice in you. But if not, may fire come from Abimelech and consume the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And may fire from the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaped into Bear and lived there because of his brother Abimelech. He speaks as a prophet. And he says, there's rejoicing for faithfulness and there's cursing for breaking the covenant. He says, this crude partnership will turn on itself, it will implode within, and you will fight fire with fire. And this one verse gives us the transition. When Abimelech had ruled over Israel three years. Now for Jotham, he's hiding. This is a long time. For us, it's one sentence. But Jotham says this, and then three years, Abimelech rules. And then God sends an evil spirit. Now, that translation is not great. Probably every translation says evil. That conjures up ideas of morality, good or bad. This is not a morally bad spirit. This is a spirit that is disastrous, meaning in the past, the spirit of God has come and empowered the deliverers to rescue the people from oppression, and now he's sent a spirit to fulfill the prophecy of Jotham. A disastrous spirit that's going, a spirit that's going to cause disastrous problems between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. They treated Abimelech deceitfully so that the crime against the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come to justice and their blood would be avenged on their brother Abimelech who killed them and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him kill his brothers. The citizens of Shechem rebelled against him by putting men in ambush on tops of mountains, and they robbed everyone who passed by them on the road. So this was reported to Abimelech. Now Gal comes in, a new character, son of Ebed, came with his brothers and crossed into Shechem. 
and the citizens of Shechem trusted him. We don't know why. But they went out to the countryside, harvested grapes from their vineyards. They trampled the grapes and held a celebration. They went to the house of their God, and as they ate and drank, they cursed Abimelech. Gal, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Isn't he the son of Jeroboam? Isn't Zebul his officer? You are to serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Oh, then you're like, oh, this is why they like him. And you're like, wait, isn't he doing the exact same thing that the other guy did? Like this crowd is easily pleased, like easily moved, right? One guy's like, hey, I'm one of your own. And then another guy's like, well, I'm really one of your own. He's half of your own. I'm one of your own. They're like, okay, yeah, this guy. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only these people were my power, I would remove Abimelech. So again, you see covetousness begets covetousness. Vengeance begets vengeance. So he said to Abimelech, gather your army and come out. Now, the ruler of the city, Zebul, which is friends with Abimelech, he heard the words of Gal, son of Ebed. He was angry. So he secretly sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Beware, Gal, son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem and are turning the city against you. Now tonight, you and the troops with you, come and wait in ambush. Wait in ambush in the countryside. Then get up early and at sunrise attack the city. When he and the troops who are with him come out against you, do to him whatever you can. So Abimelech and all the troops with him got up at night and waited in ambush for Shechem and four units. Gal, son of Ebed, went out and stood at the entrance of the city gate. So he's ready, right? He said, come out, let's fight. He goes out. Bimelech and the troops who were with him got up from their ambush. When Gal saw the troops, he said to Zebul, look, troops are coming down from the mountaintops. But Zebul said to him, the shadows of the mountains look like men to you. He, he's... It's, kind of that Lord of the Rings image of the counselor whispering deceit into your ear like no 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 that's not an army that's shadows no don't worry don't draw your sword yet don't 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 blow the horn you're just seeing things then Gal spoke again look troops are coming down from the central part of the land and one unit's coming from the direction of the diviner's oak <laughs> Zebul replied what do you have to say now that's my, my inflection. <laughs> what do you have to say now? You said, who is Bimlech, that we should serve him. Aren't these the troops you despise? Now go and fight them. So Gal went out leading the citizens of Shechem and fought against Abimelech. But Abimelech pursued him, and Gal fled before him. Numerous bodies were strewn as far as the entrance of the city gate. Abimelech stayed in Aruma, and Zebul drove Gal and his brothers from Shechem. The next day, when the people of Shechem went into the countryside, this was reported to Abimelech. He took the troops, divided them into three companies, waited in an ambush in the countryside. He looked, and the people were coming out of the city, so he rose against them and struck them down. Then Abimelech and the units that were with him rushed forward, took their stand at the entrance of the city gate. The other two units rushed against all who were in the countryside and struck them down. So Abimelech, here's the summary, fought against the city the entire day, captured it, killed the people who were in it. Then he tore down the city, Shechem, the place, Remember, in these people's mind, Abram, their father, with the Lord, he tore down the city and sowed it with salt. Meaning, nothing's going to grow here again. I'm going to ruin this place. 
I'm going to desecrate this place. When all the citizens of the Tower of Shechem heard, they entered the inner chamber of the temple of Elbereth. Then it was reported to Bimelech that all the citizens of the Tower of Shechem had gathered. So Bimelech and all the troops who were with him went up to Mount Zalman. Bimelech took his axe in his hand and cut a branch from the trees. He picked up the branch, put it on his shoulder, and said to the troops who were with him, Hurry and do what you have seen me do. Each of the troops also cut down his branch and followed Abimelech. And here's Jotham's prophecy fulfilled. They put the branches against the inner chamber and set it on fire. About a thousand men and women died, including all the men of the Tower of Shechem. Abimelech went to Thebes, camped against it, captured it. There's a strong tower inside the city, so they're going to do it again. They took this city, they destroyed its tower, they're going to the next city. There's another tower here. And all the men, women, since the city fled there, they locked themselves in, went up to the roof of the tower. When Abimelech came to attack the tower, he approached its entrance to set it on fire. But a woman threw the upper portion of a millstone on Abimelech's head and fractured his skull. Concerned about his appearance and what people say about him, he quickly called his armor bearer and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, or they'll say about me, a woman killed him. So his armor bearer ran through him, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went home. In this way, now this is the summary. This is the theological understanding of this whole event. In this way, God brought back Abimelech's evil, the evil that Abimelech had done to his father when he killed his 70 brothers. God also brought back to the men of Shechem all their evil. So the curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came upon them. Coveting tears apart relationships. And there's so much here with the vengeance and, and so much here going back and forth. And if you take this from me, then what will I take from you? And this happens throughout this whole book of Judges, but but I, I want you to sink into where it begins. When you replace the Lord or add on to Lord another God, then you're setting up yourself to not be content because there's only one being that can satisfy your restless heart. Anything else can't do it, can't settle you can't peace you give you peace so when you do that you set up yourself for life of wanting more and more and more because you're not content with what this is giving you it's never enough so you keep adding to it or keep going after it again and again and again and it doesn't give you what you want and so you set yourself up for coveting 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 needing more wanting more doing the same thing our our first parents did the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, I saw that fruit, I see it, it looks good. The, the lust of the flesh, ooh, it is good, I, I want to do this. The pride of life, I'm the one that gets to make the decision on what's right, right and wrong. I control my destiny. I'm actually really the God of my own life. I need other people to worship me. And so there's not a good Aesop's fable moral lesson from this 
This is the reality, the destruction of a life of covetousness. This, in my sense, would be wisdom literature as a proverb saying, this is where this goes. Maybe not to the extent of murder, but this is where this goes. Divisiveness, fights, quarreling, tearing apart relationships. This is what coveting does. And the father of this is the same father who's the father of lies. So if you want to go with him, this is what it'll look like. This is what it'll look like. But again, Judge us, leaves us wanting someone to step up. Some brother among us that doesn't fall into the same foolish, evil traps as we do. So Judges ends with Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there's no king in Israel. And in the, the history of the Bible, it's setting up the kingship that's about to happen with Saul and David. But if you've read the Bible, if you know more of that story, you get those kings and you get those kings and you get divisiveness and brokenness and more splintering and more idolatry and it ends, ends with this sweet promise that the Lord is going to come and prepare and he's going to turn the hearts of the children to the father, to their father. And Jesus comes along. Kind of like how Jotham's curse is fulfilled that Jesus comes along to fulfill the one who's going to turn our hearts back to the Father. And he's a person very unlike Abimelech. He doesn't covet kingship. No, he lays aside his glory. He doesn't kill his brothers for ambition, but he dies for our selfish ambition. A woman doesn't kill him with a stone, but he rolls back the stone that holds him in the grave and a woman witnesses it. <laughs> Jesus forgives us for that lusty, discontent, always craving for something else heart. And then by his grace empowers us and shows us the way the way different, the way of contentment, the way of a state of peaceful happiness and trust and satisfaction with what has been given to me, not with the lust for what I don't have. Jesus speaks of it himself in his life. He said, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, instruct those who are rich in the present age. That's all of us, everyone in this room. You have a faucet. 
instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Meaning, that a content life is not one of begrudging sadness. A content life is, is the most happy of any other person around you. Why? Because you're actually enjoying what you've been giving instead of looking past what you've been giving to being focused, obsessed, lusting over what you don't have. So God invites us to replace coveting. with contentment, but really through prayer. In action, it looks like stop lusting and start asking. Stop lusting and start asking. Start trusting. A content heart is where we don't base our lives on what we have in this world, but rather what we have in our relationship with God. So that means you can be content whether you have the loftiest position in this room or you have the worst job in this room. Because circumstances cannot dictate to me how I should feel about this because there's a God over all my circumstances. I'll say it again because you didn't get it. <laughs> Circumstance in my life, high, low, bad, great, the worst ever suffering I've ever experienced, those can't, will not dictate to me how I will feel about my life in this world because there's a God over all those circumstances. And so I'm going to be content with my relationship with him and trusting him and asking him and trusting him rather than lusting, craving, longing for what I don't have. So really, the key to contentment is, is trusting the Father's heart for you. That if he really is what he says he is, good, generous, gracious, gives every good and perfect gift, then he's trustworthy. And so whatever he has given you is what he has for you. Now, can you keep asking? Yes. But ask with pure motives, James said. Not to just spend it on your own pleasures. And if you don't know the Father heart of God, you're skeptical about it, if you're unsure about it, in action, it looks like the cross of Christ. If you feel like it's too amorphous, it's like, oh, he loves me. People have told me they love me throughout my life. No, the Father has you and loves you. And if you, if you doubt it at all, look at the cross of Christ rather than killing you on a large stone, sacrificing you for his selfish ambition, he dies on a cross 
to love you into relationship with the Father forever. You can trust him. You can be content. He's got you. Father, thank you for that. Thank you that you have us. I ask that you would graciously and kindly uh, unravel our, our fist on some of these things that we grab so hard on that so we think we so need, we have to have. Whether it be money or title, position, pray you would uh, open up our fingers, uncurl them, unclench them from these things and that you'd lead us to turn from that greed, that craving, and trusting and thanking you for who you are, for who you are to us, for who we are in relationship to you. be able to be content. Godliness with contentment is of great gain, so Lord, we pray for it. In Christ's name.